You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I hope that you will be treated today by uh, this uh, special selection uh, that I've chosen for you. I think we live in a world where we deny a lot of things. We hear about fake news and uh, what is the truth. But one thing that we struggle with is the denial of sin. Uh, We like to think that that's not a sin anymore. Uh, We hear that so many times in conversation Oh, I I thought the church had changed its opinion on that. I didn't think that was a mortal sin anymore, or that the church uh, wants to just uh, offer a great mercy. Uh, You don't have to feel guilty anymore about that. Uh, These are just little things that we hear uh, as we come and go uh, amongst the community. But uh, really, Bishop Sheen took this to heart, and he gave a reflection entitled, the denial of sin, and we're going to share that with you today. And so I would ask you to pray with me as we begin this hour of reflection. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I would ask you now to sit back and relax, and enjoy this reflection by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen on the topic of the denial of sin. If you were asked, What would you consider the greatest characteristic of our modern day? What would be your answer? I think that if you followed modern literature, you would answer a denial of sin. Sin is not in. It is even the fashion to deny sin. We are, for example, decreasing our confessions, 
There is even the suggestion that it is not well for children to go to confession before communion because sin might give them a sense of guilt. Now that would be indeed a very wrong confession. The purpose of confession of children is to recognize a relationship to a Heavenly Father and how that relationship can be broken. You just say to a two or three year old child, a mother or a father, I don't love you anymore. The child's heart is broken. This is the deepest understanding of what sin is. Sin is not the breaking of a law. It is the hurting of someone we wound. And if we do not understand broken relationships, who are we receiving anyway in Holy Communion? Is he a savior? No, we have no sin. Or there are no broken relationships. A distinguished Russian novelist of the last century, Dostoevsky, forecasted this for the 20th century. He said, a day is coming when men will say there is no sin, there is no guilt. There is only hunger. And men will come crying and fawning to our feet saying, give us bread. It used to be that we Catholics were the only ones who believed in the Immaculate Conception of our Blessed Lady. Now everyone is immaculately conceived. In Lord, the Blessed Mother said, I am the Immaculate Conception. Her unique privilege. But today it is general. What are the escapes from sin and guilt today? There are many, but I shall mention two. The first is, we are not penitent, we are patient. We are not sinners, we are sick. All guilt is considered abnormal. Therefore, you must go to a psychoanalyst or a psychiatrist to have your sins explained away, not to have the sins forgiven. Now, do not misunderstand me here. I. I'm not saying anything against the psychiatrists, but for the, because the psychiatrists are very badly needed in our day. I'm only speaking of those who deny guilt and want their guilt explained away. But even though guilt has sometimes abnormal manifestations, there's a very normal cause for that abnormal manifestation. Go back to Shakespeare's tragedy, Macbeth. Shakespeare was born in 1564, died in 1616. 
long before we knew anything about split personalities. And in this tragedy, he describes a perfect psychosis and a perfect neurosis. Macbeth has the psychosis and Lady Macbeth has the neurosis. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth had contrived to murder their cousin the king in order to seize the throne. They both had abnormal manifestations of guilt. Macbeth had a psychosis. He constantly saw before him the instrument of murder. And he asked, what is this that I see before me? A dagger? With a handle toward my hand? There was no dagger. That was the abnormal way that real guilt came out. Lady Macbeth washed her hands every quarter of an hour. She thought she saw the blood of the king upon her hands. She said, are not all the waters of the seven seas enough to wash this blood incarnadine from my hands? There was no blood there. It was the crime that was coming out. All sin works itself out. You get a piece of glass into your system, it will come out you know not where. Squeeze the tube of toothpaste with a cap on, it will come out somewhere. And all sin comes out in a mysterious kind of way. I was once instructing a, a stewardess on an international airline. I had finished an instruction on confession. It was about her 15th or 20th hour of instruction. And she said, I'm finished now. After hearing this instruction on confession, I have given up any idea of becoming a Catholic. So I will discontinue. And I said, well, why don't you take one more hour? Because the instruction on confession lasts for two hours. And then at the end of that second hour, you may leave if you wish. But at the end of the second hour, as I described the sacrament of mercy, she was in a veritable crease. She began to shriek and to cry, let me out of here. Now I'll never become a Catholic after hearing this. I said, my dear girl, there is absolutely no proportion between what you have heard and the way you're acting. Have you had an abortion? She said, yes. That was it. She finished instructions. I received her into the church, witnessed her marriage, later on baptized the baby. Now, I could have gone on for hours and hours explaining confession. That was not the problem. Guilt, how did it come out? It came out in a peculiar attack upon confession. And incidentally, when you hear falling or fallen away Catholics argue one way or another, never, never, never argue with a fallen away Catholic. 
They have not left the church for a reason, they've left it for a thing. They do not have great difficulty with the creeds, they have difficulty with the commandments. But they'll rationalize it. And that is the second escape, rationalization. And they will attempt to find spurious reasons just to avoid, as the woman at the well did, the necessity of opening up one's soul before God. Take, for example, King David. David is one day on his rooftop and he looks across the way and sees in an adjoining penthouse Bathsheba. He invited Bathsheba over to see his etchings. They love not wisely but too well and she is found with child. Well Bathsheba is married to Uriah and here she is pregnant by the king. So what does David do? Well, have to get out of it some way. So David calls Uriah back from battle. And he said, go home to your wife in order to blame paternity onto the husband. Uriah said, I can't go home to my wife because we're at war. So David then got him drunk. But Uriah slept at the front door of David's palace. David then got in touch with the general and said, put Uriah up in the front lines. Someone has to be killed in battle. Who knows? Maybe Uriah will fall. Uriah was killed. Did it bother David? Not in the least. Six months? Even more. No troubled conscience. And one day, Nathan came to him. Nathan said, David... I have a case of social justice for you. There's a poor man who has a single ewe lamb. And a rich neighbor came and took that ewe lamb, killed it, and served his guests. What shall we do? David now, great defender of social justice. David said, that man shall pay with his life and restore fourfold what he's taken. And Nathan said, Thou art the man. You're the one that stole the ewe lamb from the poor man. You stole Bathsheba. And you're guilty of the life of Uriah. Then it was that he wrote the famous Psalm 51. Miserere maid. Have mercy on me, O Lord. My sin is always before me. And do you know what we're going to see in our culture in the next 15 or 20 years? We're going to see a lot of schizophrenic women who have had abortions. And the abortion will not bother them for five or ten years. And then, your cruelest pain is when all the honey treasure of your body is spent and no new life to show. 
is then you understand how people face the bitterest of all punishment whom pleasure isolates. As they look and see against the window the pale, sad faces of the little ones deny their wombs and bosoms. But sin comes out. And they will wonder what it is. But God's law is written in our nature. It is for our salvation. And though we deny sin, it is the realest thing in the world, and the one thing that each and every one of us knows so well. Now we come to the next point. How is sin forgiven? I'm not speaking of the immediate cause, for example, absolution, perfect contrition, and the like. But what is the condition of having a sin forgiven? Perhaps I can impress it upon you more by reading it directly from Scripture. I think I remember the text. I think it's in the eighth chapter of Hebrews, verse 23. And if it is not there, I shall have to quote it for you by memory. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Imagine. Without the shedding of blood, the one condition, blood. Why blood? Well, because sin is in the blood. It's in every alley and gateway of the human body. It's in the blood of the alcoholic. It's in the blood of the degenerate. It's in all diseases which are the effects of sin. And if sin is in the blood somehow or other, blood has to be shed. In order that we may in some way get rid of it. And furthermore, Sin is a very serious offense against God. And the price of having it forgiven is the giving of a life. And the book of Leviticus says life is in the blood. And therefore, the more important the life that gives its blood, the greater the assurance of the forgiveness of sin. When God then took upon himself a human form and shed his blood, that became the way of salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. In this holy hour, then, let us now go through, go through the scriptures, old and new. And see how this is verified. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. First we go back to the original sin, when there was an abuse of freedom. And after the sin of our first parents, they perceived themselves to be naked. Why naked? Well, in the state of grace, they were, they were clothed with an aura of grace, union with God. It was a kind of a mystical covering. When they lost grace, then they felt themselves naked. And what is, what is nakedness? It's exposure. When nuns in certain communities, for example, take veils, take, for example, the poor players and Carmelites, sometimes they will come in dressed as a bride, richly dressed. Then they will put on the humble attire. The idea is they do not need this outside luxury today, outside luxury, because now they're being clothed with Christ. And isn't it interesting today that, for example, as some nuns, you do not see it here, thank God, but in other places of this country, when nuns give up their union with Christ, and uh, then they have a separate dress for every day. Pinks and blues and greens and so forth. Why? The less you've got on the inside, the more show you've got to have on the outside. Man who's got nothing in his heart has to be surrounded by a tremendous amount of luxury. Covering for another kind of nakedness. Man who's truly learned does not have to put on his show of learning. But ignoramus does. So they were naked. How do they cover their nakedness? They made for themselves an apron of fig leaves, and the fig leaves dried. And they were exposed again. How was their nakedness covered? And here we come to something that I, I never heard about it in the seminary for some reason or other. And it's so basic. It's in the third chapter of Genesis. Verse 21. And the verse just glides in, showing you some of the deep mystery of Scripture. The Lord made tunics of skins for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God gave him the skins of animals. Now notice three points here. One, God did something. Two, it was done vicariously. He didn't kill Adam and Eve for their sin. He killed an animal. Thirdly, that vicarious covering was done in virtue of the shedding of blood. These are the three elements that you'll find running through Scripture. Something God does, something that he does vicariously, and it is effected through the shedding of blood. I said I was going to take you through 
scripture, glory be to heaven, the way I'm going, we're only in the book of Genesis. But we have to finish within the hour, so I will hurry. Then we come to Cain and Abel. Cain offered the fruits of the earth. He was a technologist. He thought that was all you had to do to pay worship to God. Give the product of the earth. The earth was cursed and he gave the fruits of the earth. What did Abel do? Abel caught that primitive tradition and he offered a blood sacrifice. And Cain was afraid that someone might kill him because he committed murder. And God said, I'll put a mark on you and you'll be protected. And what was the mark? The brand of Cain. We do not know for sure what it was, but it is very likely that it was the blood of Abel himself. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Then we come to Abraham, 1700 years before Christ. Pagan who lived in the land of Ur. What tremendous faith that man had. His faith is praised eleven times in the epistle to the Hebrews. God said, go to a land that I will appoint you. He did not tell him where it was. And in a number of years spoke to him only three times. And Abraham started out to become the father of three religions, Muslimism, Judaism, and Christianity. And he went to the land of Canaan. And God said, you will have a progeny as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. That will be your issue. When he's 80 and his wife Sarah is 70, they have no children. What about the promise of God? He's to have a son. Who will have a son? And out of this relatedness, one to another, will come the Messiah. So Sarah's wife said, well, consort with the Egyptian maid. Which he did. And out of that union of Abraham and Hagar came Ishmael. The law without grace. When Abraham is a hundred and Sarah is ninety, and they both are beyond the time of conception, God had still not done anything. So think of the faith that Abraham had to have, that God will do something. And when God finally said, you're going to have a son now, you'll be rejuvenated, Sarah laughed and she said, I didn't laugh. You did laugh. So the son was called Lasher, that's the meaning of Isaac. So he had a son. Now, after waiting all these years for a son, God says, now, sacrifice your son. Think of it. In this day and age, when we write about obedience, we always say, obedience must be rational. Rational? 
What was rational about God's command to sacrifice his son? But Abraham obeyed. And as we read later on in the New Testament, Abraham had faith that even if he went through with the sacrifice, that God would raise his son to life. No one was ever comparable in the Old Testament to Abraham's faith. Moriah, for three days to all intents and purposes, his son Isaac is dead. So when he takes Isaac up this mount and unloads the wood, Isaac, the son, turns to the father Abraham and says, Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And that question was caught up on the top of Mount Moriah and it floated down the centuries. Jewish ears heard it for decade after decade. Where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide. Which was an answer a bishop gave to me once, which was a turning point in my life. And I accepted his word. God will provide his Deus Probi David. And just as Abraham lifted the sword to kill his son, God stayed his hand, and there was a ram nearby. And the ram was offered. The ram's blood was shed. One, something that God did. Secondly, it was done vicariously, the ram in the place of Isaac. And thirdly, it was affected by the shedding of blood. We hurry to Moses. Moses is in the desert, 80 years old. I, the other day, I was giving a lecture in Palm Beach, and in the hotel where I stayed, the rabbis were having a meeting. And they asked me to come in and talk to them. I said, what are you discussing? And the rabbi said, we're discussing retirement. I said, I don't understand how any Jew can talk about retirement when Moses didn't begin to lead you out of Egypt until he was 80. So Moses is called by God at 80 to lead the people out of the land. Miracle after miracle is worked by God, and Pharaoh promises to let the people go and does not let them go. And God's patience was now at an end, and he said, Tonight I will slay the firstborn of every man and beast in Egypt. Then he said to Moses, Kill a lamb, one year old, unspotted. Take that blood, sprinkle it over the doorpost, not on the floor where anyone can walk on it. Blood is sacred. See, the Jews were not allowed to eat blood with the meat. And sprinkle the blood of that lamb over the doorpost. 
and the angel that I will send to destroy the firstborn of man and beast, when he sees that blood of the Lamb, will pass over that house. That is the meaning of the Passover. And every house wherein the blood of the Lamb had been sprinkled, the firstborn was saved. God did something. He did it vicariously by the shedding of a lamb, and thirdly, did it vicariously by a lamb, and thirdly, there was involved the shedding of blood. As Moses now leads the people in the desert, they are disobedient to God and they are bitten by serpents. God said to Moses, take a serpent. And model one of brass, just like the one that stung your people. Then hang it up on the crotch of a tree. And everyone who sees that serpent of brass will be healed of poison. Now there's absolutely nothing in looking at a brass serpent that will cure snake bite. Nothing. All these things were in the Old Testament were done in figure. It was something God asked, and those who looked upon that serpent of brass were healed of the poison. And isn't it interesting that when our blessed Lord came one night in a discussion with Nicodemus, he said, the Son of Man must be lifted up in the desert, the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross as Moses lifted the serpent in the desert. Our Lord here compared himself to the serpent. So our blessed Lord on the cross looked as if he were full of the poison of sin because he took our place and had our sins upon him. But as there was no poison in the brass serpent, so there was no poison of sin in the person of Christ, and all who look upon him will be healed of sin. We have no time to give you a dozen other references which I have marked here in the Old Testament, because we must bring it to a close. But now we come to the New Testament and to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is preaching in the Jordan. It is Passover time. It is the first Passover of our Lord's public life. On that highway that led from the Jordan up a few miles to Jericho and then all the way up to Jerusalem, there were hundreds of thousands of Jews. Every family had to bring a Paschal lamb, one year old without stain. Bring it to the temple where the Paschal lamb would be sacrificed. The Jewish religion was a veritable hemorrhage of blood. And all the while, these people of the Old Testament who live in figures heard the question of Isaac, where is the lamb? 
Where is the Lamb? And as John the Baptist preaches his hard doctrine of penance, laying the axe to the root of the tree, he sees the family leading these one-year-old lambs, children at church, had tied purple and red ribbons around the necks of the lambs. And as he watches that procession in his preaching, he looks up and sees someone in the crowd. He interrupts his discourse, and the question of the centuries was answered. Where is the lamb? He shouted out, Behold, the lamb of God! Who takes away the sin of the world. Where is the Lamb? He had come. Something God did, he sent his Son. Did it vicariously to be a victim for us, and thirdly, by the shedding of his blood. And our blessed Lord, therefore, is unfurled on the gibbet of the cross. And as he is erected there at the crossroads of civilization of Rome and Memphis and Jerusalem, placarded before us, as Paul tells us, there were thousands of paschal lambs being sacrificed in the temple. It was a great ceremony in the temple while our Lord was hanging on the cross. Here was this great purple and hyacinth and gold curtain, sixty feet high, that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The high priest was allowed to enter this Holy of Holies only once a year, and this was the day that we would take he was preparing to take the blood of the Lamb and sprinkle it on that curtain which gave him the right to enter and to commune with the Holy of Holies. And as the priest prepares in the Temple of Jerusalem, living in the symbol and the figure of the Paschal Lamb, our Lord offers his life on the cross. And a Roman soldier pierces his side with a lance. And at the very moment that the side of the Christ is opened with that lance, this great curtain of the Temple of Jerusalem is rent from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, for man could do that. And the Holy of Holies, which men had never seen before, was opened. And on Calvary itself, the true Holy of Holies, Christ, his heart was open. Heaven was open. The Lamb had come, and the price of redemption had been paid. And as we read in the epistle to the Hebrews, the veil of the temple is compared to the flesh of Christ. And in this beautiful text, 10th chapter, verse 19, so now, my friends, the blood of Jesus makes us free to enter boldly into the sanctuary.
into the heart of Christ by the new living way which he has opened for us through the curtain the way of the flesh without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin and I believe the reason we have so much violence on our streets 40 different kinds of wars going on at the present time in the world so much shedding of one another's blood is because we instinctively realize that without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin and when we do not invoke the blood of Christ we shed one another's blood in the dirty business of war so coming back to the very beginning sin is costly without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin and this is our great privilege fathers that at the altar we can hold this blood of Christ we give it to the people we give them communion and as Moses Moses sprinkled the people with the blood of the lamb so we are giving the blood of salvation in holy communion every time we lift our hand in the confessional box blood drips from it every time we sin our hope for immediate remission is the invocation of the blood of Christ sin therefore is terrible but sin is not the worst thing in the world the worst thing in the world is the denial of sin If I am blind and deny there's any such thing as light, shall I ever see? If I am deaf and deny there's any such thing as harmony, will I ever hear? And if I am a sinner and deny there's any such thing as sin, will I ever be forgiven? It is the denial of sin that is the unforgivable sin. And so as we get away from Christ, we need new coverings it's very interesting to see the symbols change when we lose the reality when we lose patriotism and love of the country we begin to burn the flag when we cease to love our consecration we take off the signs of consecration we begin to dress when we become naked on the inside but with all of this falling away our hope is in the blood of Christ and the word blood in the old testament and in the new testament is used 440 times without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin invoke this blood in the sacrament in the Eucharist in your prayers for without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin if you had never sinned you never could call Jesus Savior you are listening to Radio Maria Canada we now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. I put all my hope on the 
Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. That was uh, the artist Audrey Assad and her rendition entitled Good to Me. And I love the lyrics of that song, that God, you've been good to me. And uh, I think we can all agree that our God is good and that many of us share the joys of his friendship. And, uh, you know, we are gracious to thank the good Lord for letting this show air today. And it is through your generosity that we've been able to do that, along with a great deal of prayer. And so we can hope to continue to share these messages from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen over the next few weeks and uh, hopefully into the years to come. And so we will continue to rely on your generosity, both in prayer and financial donations. Now, the message that the Venerable Sheen shared today about the denial of sin, I, I think you've had a few moments now to kind of contemplate what he said. And I think we do find ourselves guilty from time to time, uh, denying our sin. Uh, you know, it's not that bad. I'm sure, you know, the church has softened its position. Uh, but no, sin is sin. Uh, and our Lord spoke about sin a great deal in sacred scripture. Uh, when he said that liars and murderers and adulterers and, uh, <laughs> you know, the list goes on and on, shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, it's a warning to us. Uh, I remember in the confessional years ago, uh, you know, sharing the sin of lying uh, to the priest that was hearing my confession. And uh, he scolded me and said, remember, our Lord spoke about lying and, uh, you know, what the consequences are. And uh, it sobered me up a great deal. So uh, we have to remember, if our Lord said it, he meant it. And so let us never fall into this trap of denying sin. Uh, Bishop Sheen would say many times that the world suffers from this condition, thinking that everybody now is immaculately conceived, that they're without sin. Uh, but that could be farthest from the truth. We are all sinners, all in need of a Savior, uh, in need of salvation. So let us continue to pray for God's mercy upon us and this whole world. And so I would ask you to uh, do a little bit of homework over the next few weeks. It's, I get to teach classes from time to time. I started a thing called the School of Sheen. And so I would invite you to visit my website. Uh, it's simply bishopsheentoday.com. So very simple, bishopsheentoday, and then the dot com. And there are over 100 YouTube videos, all the television shows from the 50s and 60s, a lot of the lectures that he gave, uh, these recorded broadcasts, and so they're out there on YouTube, and I've just put them all together in one spot. And so you, with a click of a mouse, you can watch episode after episode after episode of Bishop Sheen. And if you're a reader, uh, there is a Read Sheen tab on the website, and there you can download for free a number of his famous books. Uh, you know, the uh, one thing I think of is The World's First Love, a great book about Our Lady that Sheen penned many years ago, and that's available for a free download. Um, almost all of his Catholic Hour publications are there, and uh, you'd be surprised. I think there's 60 of them right now on the site that you can download for free. 
And, of course, there is the Radio Maria archives that uh, all the programs we've done, and I've done many other shows uh, over the Internet for many years now. I have about five years' worth of broadcast that you can uh, scroll through, and if there's a topic you like, click on it and download it and listen to it later. So, again, that website, bishopsheentoday.com. And I uh, want to thank my good friend Anthony at a website called FultonSheen.com. And Anthony spent many years uh, remastering uh, a number of these recordings uh, that you've heard today uh, and over the last few weeks. Uh, he cleaned them up so they're crisp and clear and there's not too much static in them. And so I'd encourage you to visit his site. Uh, again, www.FultonSheen.com. Of course, the name of Bishop Sheen, his name is Fulton Sheen. Uh, and there, there's over 300 audio uh, files that you can download for li literally pennies. I remember downloading it about six or seven years ago, and I'm still using them, uh, sharing them, of course, in um, my different um, uh, situations. I have a car, of course, so I have the talks on my car, I have the talks on my cell phone, on my computer, and so whenever I get a chance, I listen to Bishop Sheen. So uh, everybody needs a Sheen library, and the best library on the market is at FultonSheen.com. So anyway, I want you to continue to pray. Of course, Bishop Sheen loved Our Lady, and he loved our Eucharistic Lord. So if you can, by all means, make that time for a holy hour, pray a rosary, and continue to draw closer to God. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you, May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.